0: Well, this morning we're going to continue our series in Proverbs that we've been calling Wisdom in a Wikipedia World, and this morning our topic is temptation. Have you ever wondered why people say opportunity only knocks once, but temptation seems to just keep knocking and knocking and knocking and banging on our doors constantly? As one man said, I couldn't help it. I can resist everything but temptation. One lady I heard said, "Lead me not in temptation; I can find it all by myself." One patient went to a doctor and said, "Doctor, doctor, I broke my arm in two different places." The doctor said, "Well, then stay out of those places." <laughs> and therein, yes, where's the drummer? We need. Uh, I'll be here all week. Um. But therein lies actually a, a nice little hint as to dealing with temptation, because temptation itself isn't actually sinful. In fact, the scriptures tell us that God uses temptation to test us, to grow us, to strengthen us, but that the evil one uses temptation to harm us. That is to say that temptation thought of negatively like that. There are things that look appealing. There are things that coax us into doing things that we don't think are right. They induce or allure or seduce us. And when we think of temptations that way, we normally think of things that if we did them, they have negative consequences. Also, if you just think of temptation in kind of its dictionary sense of the term, it means something that points to a lack of self-control in us. So Temptation, while itself is not evil or bad or wrong, it is exciting, and this is why we need to think about it. Because temptation stimulates desire. And desire, for most human beings, makes us feel alive. There's something about just wanting something, desiring something, seeing something that is good, seeing something that's pleasant, that whole story in the garden. There's something about that that makes us feel alive. And for most of us... um, life is mundane or overbusy, and it makes us feel subdued. And so temptations, when they come alive, come around us, make us feel alive. All you have to do to think about this is just think of marketing. I mean, even when I was studying business in the 70s in college, I mean, marketing was designed, we were told, to stimulate desire, to make people feel they have a need for something, even if they don't actually have the need. Now, I don't mean to say that all marketing's evil or anything like that. I'm just simply saying that that is a big part of what's going on in selling products. It's intended to entice us, to excite us by making us feel like we need something or we desire it. So my friend, Dallas Willard, when he thinks about this, he thinks about um, that what's going wrong in, for, in most of us or foremost of it is what he calls a deformed desire system. That somewhere in us is a desire system that's deformed. Because desire on the biblical understanding is not, again, like temptation itself, bad. But desire is dangerous because it has a tendency to take over one's life. And so a big part of what's going on when we think of temptation is that desire must be subordinated to what is good. And it's the role of the will in a human person. That capacity that God's given all of us to choose, uh, sometimes called volition, when it comes to desire, it's the will God gave us that is supposed to kind of put desire in its place. But the will, and, and I'm, you know, we actually shouldn't sort of parcel the human person like this, but just for the sake of this conversation, the will can only deal with desire if the will understands and is committed to what is good. I say that again? The will can only affect desire to the degree that the will understands and is committed to that which is good. It has to be strongly oriented towards that which is good. And this is why you, you constantly hear me saying things like, what do you imagine? What do you think about your life? In, in what context are you living your life? Like, like when we started this morning, are we living our lives in an economic context? Is that what it means to be human? Are we living our lives in the context of war, whether it's a war on terror or wars around the earth? Is is that what it means to be human? So when I'm constantly, what you're going to hear this morning is that one of the basic fundamental ways of dealing with temptation is broaden the context. Ask yourself, what does it mean for me to do this? Does this match the story that I think I'm living in? Does this desire align with what I think God's doing with a community of people called the church? Does this seem to align with what God was doing with the community of people called Israel? Does this seem to sort of go along with that? You broaden the context. Because what happens is when the will falls captive to desire, we do whatever we want. Okay, I know it's Sunday morning and we're not used to thinking uh, perhaps deeply on Sunday morning. Let me say that again. When the will falls captive to desire... We end up just doing what we want because our wanter, that sort of deformed desire system that's within all of us then remains in control. This is what's happening in the Genesis text. The woman, and this isn't to pick on women, it's called one of the first humans, saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food, and so she desired it. It was pleasing to the eye. She could see that it was desirable for gaining wisdom, and so she took it and ate it and gave some to her husband. The Apostle Paul said, I find myself doing the very thing I hate. In Galatians, he taught us that the flesh desires what is contrary to the spirit, and the spirit desires what's contrary to the flesh. They're in conflict with each other, he said, so that you do what you do not want to do. Or James put it this way, each one of us is tempted when by his own evil desire. Did you catch that? Temptation means nothing if it doesn't match a previously existing desire. There are certain things that if you put in front of me, I just, they're not tempting to me at all. But when you put something in front of me that matches a previously existing desire, I'm at that point in big trouble. That's when the moment's on and the rubber's hitting the road, and either I have a will that is determined to fit into what I think it means to be taught according to God, or I don't. And if I don't have that going for me, I'm toast. I've got nothing to lean on, humanly speaking. Except for, as God said, when you trust me, and we'll go over this as we're done, you trust me, you rely on me, you believe that I'll be there with you. We got that going for us, but just humanly speaking, Without the first humans somehow having an ear to hear what the serpent was saying, there would be no temptation. The first humans had something going on in them that was already mistrusting God or the snake would have meant nothing to them. Come on, just picture something that to somebody else you know is a temptation, but to you is like, whatever. It's not a temptation to me at all. Why? Because it, it doesn't hook anything in you. But somehow the serpent was able to hook something in the first humans. And it's that, it's that warped thing as James is getting at when he says, each one of you is tempted when by his own evil desire, he's dragged away and enticed. And then James says, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. Or as Peter told us, look, you're aliens and strangers in this world, so abstain from sinful desires, which war against your soul. Your soul being that part of you that makes you essentially human. And what Peter's saying is here is that somewhere within all of us is this broken, deformed desire system, and it wages war against our soul. All right, well, if that's sort of the essence of what temptation is, let's see what the Proverbs say about our battle with temptation. So you might want to get your bulletin out and have it in front of you, and you can, you can follow here these basic sort of things that the Proverbs tell us about the human battle with temptation. First thing they teach us is that self-control is key. Now, that's kind of a duh, except for look at that proverb that says, like a city whose walls are broken through. What does that mean? An ancient city that had walls broken down, what's the picture the proverb uh, is painting for us there? It's vulnerability. This city's vulnerable. Its walls are broken down. And that's what a person is like who lacks self-control. They're vulnerable to all manner of temptation. For when a person has given the desire, when a person has given their own desire the right to rule, then that desire blinds the mind, and it appears to give the will no alternatives. Have you ever heard somebody say, I just couldn't help it, or I just had to? Well, what's happening there is somebody whose desires have actually blinded the mind And so they have no sense of alternatives, choices that they could make. They actually mean it. Now, if they stop to think about it, you know, they would realize it's not true. But at the moment when they say, I just couldn't help it. I had no choice. He was being a jerk. I had to cuss him out. Or whatever, you know. I couldn't help it, you know. He cut me off in traffic and whatever. So when you hear people say that, it's actually true. Their minds have become blinded by this out-of-control desire and then it makes them feel as if it's actually true that I have no alternatives. But, and people have known this for thousands of years, it's nothing new. It's self-control that cuts off desire. This is why for as long as we've had recorded human history, it's been thought that self-discipline is a cardinal virtue. But of course, as we were singing this morning, and as we stopped to think about it, We can't do it just with our self-control. We can't win in that sense alone. We need the grace and power of God. We need a community of people. We need spiritual disciplines. There's lots of other things we need. But self-control is still a big deal, according to the Proverbs. Well, secondly, the Proverbs teach us that there are consequences for giving in to temptations. This is what it means, where if you look on your bulletin, can a man scoop fire into his lap without his clothes being burned? Of course not. Can a man walk on hard coals without his feet being scorched? Again, of course not. The Proverbs teach us that in the paths of wicked are snares and pitfalls. They tell us that the simple keep going and they pay the penalty. Look at what happened in the Genesis text. Did they get what they wanted? If we eat of this, we'll know. Did they get what they wanted? No, what they found out is that they were naked. And so they covered themselves. What they found out is that they were far from God and that God might be angry, and so they hid. There's consequences to giving in to temptations. I like the way Eugene puts it in the message when he says, you grab all you can get, and here's what happens. The more you get, the less you are. That might be worth jotting down. The more you get, the less you are. Or, as Augustine put it, whoever seeks to be more than he is, whoever seeks to become more than she is, becomes less. Well, next, the Proverbs tell us that intention and will matter. Look at the proverb that says, My son, if sinful men entice you, do not give in to them. But now, here's the way this actually works our own intention, our own will, Alone, I said, they don't suffice. Not in most situations that we find ourselves. Not in your basic sort of day-in and day-out temptations. To deal with them, we have to be sort of in shape. You know, like uh, uh, basketball season's about to start, I think. Like next week or something. So you know, in the last few weeks, the NBA's been having their training camps. Well, why? I mean, these guys are world-class athletes. Because they're trying to get in the kind of shape so that when the guy dribbling the ball goes that way, they can go too, and they don't like tear any you know, hamstrings or groin muscles or anything. They're in shape. They're prepared to do what happens. They're prepared to do the thing that needs to be done when it needs to be done. And that's the view of the Bible is that we sort of get ourselves in shape, but that we do it trusting God. That's the point of the First Corinthians 10 passage, that no temptation has overtaken you except what is common to us all. The message there is just relax. And then second, realize that God's faithful. He'll not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But rather, when you're tempted, he'll provide you a way out so that you can endure it. But again, that happens best to the people who are becoming the kinds of people for whom seeing the way out is kind of intuitive, rather than those whose minds are blinded because their life has been taken over by desire. Well, next, the Proverbs tell us that we need to put temptation in its place. And I alluded to this in the beginning that one of the best ways to deal with temptation is to put it in its bigger story or its context. This is what the proverb means. It says, always be zealous for the fear of the Lord. Or as the message has it, soak yourself in the fear of the Lord which is to say that temptations of all kinds are often best defeated by broadening the view, by looking at the solicitation in the larger context of life in God, and therefore seeing things as they really are. Two women make this the most abundantly clear, at least in my own imagination. You've got Eve with strong desire and strong longing And so when the the tempter comes along with the temptation, she sees, she eats, she gives. And now you have Mary, who hears the announcement of this amazing story that's unfolding in her lifetime. And Mary says, be it unto me as you have said. That is the classic capacity of either reducing temptation in life to that thing that I feel inside of me, and that will lead down a certain road, and it will lead to certain habits or patterns of living. And then there's Mary, who sees my little life, little 16-year-old girl, with the most stunning news that any human being could ever hear, that God is about now to bring to bear on the earth the culmination of this long story that her people have been living in. And he says to her, you, you, you're gonna bear this Christ child. And this is what's gonna happen. And this is what's gonna happen in culture. And this is gonna be the ramifications. And this is the stuff that's gonna be swimming all around you and in you as you consider this. And Mary says, may it be unto me as you have said. That's what happens when you take temptation and you put it in this bigger context. It's not some cure-all, but it certainly makes life look different. This is what's happening to Jesus in our gospel reading this morning. That little battle of quoting Deuteronomy back and forth. Well, what is Deuteronomy? If not the heart of the story of Israel coming into the promised land and being the people of God. And all the temptations that the nation Israel, the chosen people of God, failed at, Jesus, in the wilderness, succeeds. He defeats the temptation. How? By saying, look, I don't just live on my physical needs and desires. I'm living in this whole big other story. I live on the word of God, which is to say the announcement of God and what God's up to. He says, when it comes to my own possessions and power, I don't test the Lord. I take it for what it is. And when it becomes your appeal to me, to pride, well, I say, worship the Lord your God and him only and serve him with absolute single-mindedness. Now, stop and think for a minute. What does the phrase single-mindedness, it can have no meaning except for it arises out of a context. Well, what's the context? You see somebody doing a job and they say, I'm I'm single-mindedly doing this right now. I'm grading papers or I'm, you know, preparing dinner and I'm sort of single-minded. Well, single-mindedness only has any meaning when it has a referent. And that referent, in this case, Jesus is saying, I'm single-mindedly living into this story and plan of God. Thus, I can't be bothered with your temptations. They take me off. But see, without that sort of otherwise controlling story, then temptations either just get abstracted or they get made simply personal, and we struggle then to do anything about them. Well, lastly, the Proverbs tell us that humility matters when it comes to temptation. Look at your proverb there that says, listen, my daughter, listen, my son, and be wise. And then you hear another bit more about intention and set your heart on the right path. Humility and intention. Listen, my son. Don't be hard-headed. Listen and be wise. let's, uh, Let's think about bringing this to an end this morning by thinking of this famous sentence or two from Genesis. God said to Cain, sin is crouching at your door, it desires to have you, but you must master it. Sin is crouching at your door, it desires to have you, but you must master it. So what's a solid plan for dealing with temptation? If you want to write down just four simple little things, again, it's not the end all and the be all, but certainly it will get us on the right path. Our scripture readings this morning tell us, first, store up scripture in your heart and use it. That is to say, put yourself in this story and then use it to become the basic sort of um, gyroscope for your life, the basic sort of true north. Store up scripture in your heart and use it. Second. Keep your eyes on God and your role in the story, your calling to be light. And if you keep your eyes on your calling to be light, that helps you choose to do what's right. So keep your eyes on God, your role in his story, your calling to be salt and light. Number three, trust him for everything. That's the First that's the, uh, Corinthians 10 passage. Trust him for everything and pray for help. And then finally, remembering our broken desire system and remembering the role of God's capacity that He's given us to have a will, choice, volition, the last thing is a firm no to voices calling you back into darkness. A very firm no to voices calling you back into the darkness. Which means recognize the people and places and things that tend to lead you to sin. It means running from everything you know is wrong. And it means sticking with friends who will help you in community. So store up scripture. Keep your eyes on God and his story. Trust him for everything and pray for help when you need it. And a firm note of voices calling you back into darkness. Father, we ask that you would take this this morning and help it, oh God, to be something more than just a few moralisms, help it, Lord, to reorient the basic posture of our lives, especially our wanters, those places of desire in us that are broken. We ask that you would heal them. Thank you for listening. For more information about Holy Trinity Church, please visit us online at www.myholytrinitychurch.com.